and welcome to Tabletop Game Talk, On Topic, a show where we talk about tabletop gaming topics of all kinds. I'm one of your hosts, Fletcher. I'm Kitty. And I'm Chris. Today we're talking about CMON games, also known as Cool Mini or Not. We'll talk about why they are called Cool Mini or Not, how they use Kickstarter, and how it's changed over the years. The fact that they are one of the few public tra- publicly traded game companies, and we'll even talk about some of their games. But first, a thank you to our Patreon friends of the show, Adam Harrison and the Just... And the see, we're both. This is good. We're doing great. <laughs> and the SGC, and we haven't even made it one minute into the show yet. <laughs> nope, we're good. We're on fire. Um, and we have a new patron, Jimothy. Jimothy, I don't know your last name, but you didn't tell me, so I'm just assuming you are the Jimothy, which works yeah. for me. I don't know a lot of Jimothys. The Jimothy. <laughs> and thanks to yeah, all of our other patrons. We're just too used to doing a. Uh... Dice Tower News now, Chris, where we can stop and be like, oh, I'll, I'll do a reread on that one. <laughs> there is no editing on TGT. No, and it really took me like a second to be like, oh, I can't just say I'm going to start back at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I think we've we've released one DTN where it was an unedited version. We put that <laughs> on the, behind the patron wall. Yes. But if you want to hear us sound like super cool people who know how to read <laughs> well that one was relatively entertaining because we were being entertaining at the time uh most of them just sound like us repeating the same thing over and over and over getting frustrated often chris going yeah i make up the probably two-thirds of the mistakes no you just take longer to make your mistakes <laughs> <laughs> i make just as many they're just shorter <laughs> one of these days fletcher we're gonna have to have you editing. guest host onto dtn Oh, no, that sounds terrible. <laughs> you can practice. Because Fletcher loves reading so much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you can practice this reading because it's all written out for you. So you can rehearse. Yeah, so are the names. And then you know how long that took me to do. <laughs> well, speaking of the names, we put out a call for credits. And we have a few people who sent us in credits. So today, neither, well, neither of us, none of us, have to read the outgoing credits. Yes. Except for Jimothy. We'll, we'll tack you on at the end. And that still goes. So remember, uh, we're giving away a game next week. That would be Tapestry. And if you send in you reading the credits, we'll put the updated list in the show notes. Then you get 10 entries into that particular drawing. So do that. Um, We'll give you more details on that at the end of the show. All right. Last week was Fantasy Flight. This week, we are talking about Simon. Um, there's a bunch of stuff I don't think we covered on Fantasy Flight 2. We didn't cover their digital stuff. We didn't cover their organized play stuff much at all. We, like, there's just, ah, there's so much stuff that I, we didn't do an entire show on Fantasy Flight. But that's what the Covenant cast is. So if you are interested in Fantasy Flight and their games, you should listen to the Covenant cast because that's almost all they talk about are Fantasy Flight games. So I just put that public service announcement out there. All right. Cool mini or not, we split this one up a little bit so that we each have some source material to talk about. And we're starting with Fletcher as to why this company is named Cool Mini or Not. So, based on the uh, research that I did, (laughs) (laughs) the company is called Cool Mini or Not because it basically started as a, I'm going to summarize it as a hot or not for minis. Like little miniatures that people would paint. And there isn't, at least not anymore that I could see uh like a hot or not kind of like button it's just people like commenting um below on the mini and every user has like a profile that you can like delve into and see like other stuff their profile or other other minis that they painted um it's actually kind of cool uh to get like bragging rights and stuff like that but i guess that was the origin of simon yep and well what's really cool about cool mini or not was this was sort of i want to say this was i don't know early teens oh also their website is still not great <laughs> it's well, about still but it's currently not great it's like early teens styling yeah i'm gonna say like it looks like it's from 2009 ish and there's like broken like image links and stuff stuff isn't formatted correctly yeah it's not the easiest site to navigate and it's kind of this weird blog, rounded corner, everything. It really does look like it came out of the early 2000s. But you can go through, so they have a browse gallery, and you can go through and you can like see all of the miniatures, and you click on the miniatures, and you essentially judge it based on 
how well it was painted. And the one I'm looking at here doesn't look like it was painted. It looks like it was drawn. So if this is actual painting, this is amazing. And But you would just rate it, and then you could just rate miniature after miniature after miniature. And people would put their miniatures up here and say, okay, how well am I doing? How is this good? Is this bad? And people would give advice. And there's like basically just help on painting miniatures in general. This was a lot of war gamers, but also a lot of like D&D figures as well. So you could just lose hours and hours and hours on this. But it started out just like a free public domain site. And for the most part, it looks like it still is. I I don't see many ads at all. Yeah. Though I, I almost expect to see like a pop-up where it says like, this website works best on Internet Explorer. So. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Um, but yeah, and they they would do awards and stuff. But they started publishing games a little later, and that's where Kitty's going to jump in with her Kickstarter history as we analyze Simon in the early days of their Kickstarter, which was their first Kickstarter. Their first Kickstarter was Zombicide, and this was in May of 2012. They put up Zombicide, and they got it looks like. $700,000, almost $800,000 for that one. Um, almost 4,000% funded and wildly popular Zombicide has been for them. Because if you look at their top grossing, all of their Kickstarters that they've ever put up, five of the top 10 are Zombicide titles. <laughs> so, yep. And Zombicide, at the time that it came out, it broke the Kickstarter funding record, at least for games, but I think just in general, it broke the record. This was before Exploding Kittens blew it out of the water with like 8 million, but it was uh, it was a pretty good start back in 2012, which was seven years ago. Yeah, and I actually have the page pulled up here. Um, you can still see closed projects on Kickstarter. So it looks like pledges ranged from um, $10 to just get the cover art signed all the way up to who wants to guess what the highest pledge level is i don't think i'm allowed to no guess because i'm about to click on it but actually i'm not looking at it yet right, don't click don't click guess first the highest pledge level for their very first kickstarter where they hadn't yet figured out how pledge how to like milk the pledges um 150 is their typical high end right now not the all in but just like their all in I'm going to say 100. I'm going to say 100 because they hadn't figured it out yet. 3,000. Oh, my God. I was going to say like 500. For $3,000, you could get two copies of hand-painted miniatures in your Zombicide game. So this is... Yeah, so you got two copies of the game and everything was all hand-printed. Or hand-painted. All hand-painted. Yes. Yep. And it sold out. Yeah, like they only had one, one of this, and it sold. Yep, two packers backed at the two thousand dollar level. They had five at fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, so well, the two thousand dollar one is I am Legend. Become a survivor or zombie in the next expansion, and we'll sculpt you to picture sculpt two pictures of you. Oh my gosh! Yeah, there are some really cool custom levels here that they have since dropped. Yes. Um, probably because having somebody hand paint, it looks like there were three copies. No, there's another five. So that's eight, eight hand painted copies went out into the world. Well, that's a lot of work. Yeah. To give you a perspective, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen pledge levels. I don't know if that was on purpose because of the zombie theme, but 13 pledge levels were now typically there is a single pledge level or potentially two. Um, so they've they've kind of streamlined their funding goals quite a bit. But they were one of the very first, like 2012, there weren't a lot of games out there doing Kickstarter. So this this was kind of like paving the way. Were there any add-ons with this? Add-ons. There were, yep. A you number of like, add-ons. Yes, optional stuff is what they're calling it. They don't even call it add-ons yet. <laughs> And so, the miniatures for Zombie Side were really, really bad. <laughs> You'll have to talk about that because I don't know about the the quality of the product here. They look okay in pictures, 
but only okay. And in person, there are these color plastic, very low detail miniatures, which is just, ugh, but we'll get into <laughs> full circle in a little bit. So let's go on. What was their next Kickstarter? All right. Their second Kickstarter was Sedition Wars Battle for Alabaster. Never heard of it. Uh, raise more money than Zombicide. Hmm. Still don't know anything about it. They go on to Relic Knights, Guilds of Cadwallon, Rivet Wars, and then Zombicide Season 2, which is where they break the $2 million mark on Kickstarter. Yeah. Well, now they broke a million and the $2 million in that same one. Before yes. that, the Sedition Wars got to 950000 but hadn't broken a million yet. Yep. And this probably, let's see, this was March of 2013. This probably broke another Kickstarter record at that point. I would I would guess. I'm not sure when Exploding Kittens came out, but 2.2 million is a decent amount for a game. All right. So am I just reading these all off? <laughs> um, well, yeah, we'll stop at the ones that are kind of interesting. All right. I'll just like, keep reading then. Yeah. Pause when you want me to. Um, so let's say Chaos Ball. Yep. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Wrath of Kings. Yep. Arcadia Quest. Arcadia Quest. Now, Chaos Ball and Wrath of Kings, again, came and went. I don't recall these much at all. Chaos Ball, maybe. I think it was like a modular game. There's, But that one only made like 350000 only. Um, Arcadia Quest, I thought might have made more than this. This was, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Their eighth Kickstarter was Arcadia Quest, which made 775000 and started my Kickstarter edition, because once I got my hand on this game, I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. I must have everything. And that was a problem. Um, yeah. Because I pulled this one up because I knew you were going to talk about this one. So once again, I have the uh, Kickstarter page up here, and I should have already scrolled to the exclusives available here. But yeah, there. this is where you start seeing, you know... There are some crazy Kickstarter exclusives if you back at a certain level. Well, and they also had basically everyone who backed at all would get a bunch of like stretch goals. I think this was, um, I don't know if they had done stretch goals before this. They had, yes. But yeah, so you started seeing these stretch goals, which were included in the base game, but they were Kickstarter exclusive stretch goals, which included the Guildmaster box, which was a bunch of extra characters, uh, an extra campaign, an extra everything. So if you pledged at the $100 level, you would get all of these extra figures only if you pledged on Kickstarter. If you didn't, these extra figures would set you back two, three, four hundred dollars $400, which were free for Kickstarter backers. So yeah. At that point, I said, oh, I must back everything on Kickstarter because I never want to have to pay a ton of money again for extras. And now I've spent way more money than I would have if I just got the extras for the games that I wanted. (laughs) (sighs) So true. And this one still does have the kind of higher pledge level. So there's the $100 pledge and then a um, $400 or $400 and $5 level. Um, I'm not going to do too much reading into what the difference is between... 400 had pre-painted minis. But the 405 and the 410? I don't Um, know. I think those might have just been different shipping waves. Perhaps. Is how... And and again, this is... Oh, yep. uh, It's different shipping waves. Oh, okay. If you wanted to pay to get your November ship date. Then you'd pay a couple extra dollars. But they also... Well, actually, I think it might have went the other way. They started with the 400, and those... Sold out immediately, so I then bet, they added yeah. another, and then another. And this was still... stuff. Yeah, they were still doing early birds here. So your 100 was your base game, but then you could get a $90 early bird if you were one of the first X number of backers. And I'm looking at this Kickstarter campaign, and I would still back it today. I just... <laughs> I love the art style. I love the chibi characters. I know some people don't. Um, this one... You compare these miniatures with the Zombicide miniatures, and you're just like, wow, look at the detail on these. Look at what you can do with them. Um, they started putting painted miniatures on there, like unlike Zombicide, where nothing was painted when they put it on there. So there's some um, marketing increased budget for the, the for this Kickstarter. I would say the Kickstarter art is better, even if the game art... I mean, it's such a different style, it's hard to say, but the the, the page is a very different look already. Yeah. Okay, moving on. We have Dogs of War. Xenoshift. Which nothing. Yeah. Xenoshift Onslaught. 
Not Which, very much. No, that was like 240,000. Dogs of War was like 66,000. And then the big one. Zombicide Season 3. Almost hitting $3 million at 2.8. Yep. So, at this point, Zombicide, like, it was a craze. Now, if we look at this, Zombicide Season 1 was uh, May of 2012. Season 2 was April of 2013. Or March, March, April, March of 2013. And then this was July of 2014. So every year we're getting a zombie side season, which again, with the zombie side craze, that made sense. And here's another $3 million of money for them. And then we go on The World of Smog. Yeah. Rum and Bones. Okay. Blood Rage. One of the ones that a ton of people missed out on. Didn't even raise a million dollars. Um, it, this is notable. This is an Eric Lane game. And I'm doing a quick scan here. Arcadia Quest was also an Eric Lang game. So it looks like this might be the second one um, that he had done for Simon at, or Kulmanir, not at the time. He wasn't a full-time employee at the time. He was just a designer. But yeah, Blood Rage went under a lot of people's radars. And a lot of the extras you could get on Blood Rage caused... Uh, some hard feelings when the game came out and everyone loved it, but <laughs> couldn't get on, couldn't get all those extras, which yes. made the next game quite a disappointment. Besieged. Yep. Son of the Abyss. Yeah. Sons of the Abyss. Horrible. I mean, it made almost $600,000, but it was a critical flop. People did not like this game. However, July 2015. We come back. <laughs> with Zombicide Black Plague, which raises just over $4 million. And take Zombicide from present day into a fantasy world, adding spells and wizards and extra um, equipment slots and basically taking it and making, yeah, just making a fantasy game out of it. I did not like Zombicide when I first played it. And I did not play Zombicide. I didn't even pay attention to Zombicide Black Plague because I'm like, I don't like Zombicide. Until later, I played Zombieside Black Plague, and I'm like, oh my god, I love this game. Like, <laughs> the theme was much better, and then the system itself was much better. But it'll be, Zombieside's going to come up again. Um, next, and this, I didn't realize this followed so shortly after, but three months later. The Others, Seven Sins. Which was a kind of a Cthu- modern-day Cthulhu game, again, by Eric Lang, um, which did fairly well. I'm not sure that it didn't take off like his other games. It wasn't bad, but I don't think it just, it didn't have the mass that his other games had. But they still made like 1.5 million, so. Um, Arcadia Quest Inferno. Which more than doubled Arcadia Quest, because at that point people were like, oh, Arcadia Quest is great. And so this one made a ton. I found out about Arcadia Quest right, I don't know, maybe three months after this closed. And so not only did I need to get the first Arcadia Quest stuff, I needed to get the Infernal stuff too. <sighs> Regrets. Um, Xenoshift Deadmire. Dreadmire. Yeah. This would be better if good. I could read. <laughs> Masmora, Dungeons of Arcadia. So this was interesting. This allowed you to use Arcadia Quest figures in a different game. So it was more, um, Masmora's, you're controlling like one character, I believe. And it's, uh, I, it's, I don't remember if it's co-op or not, but it's, it was a different designer. It wasn't Eric Lang, but it was the same world. And there was cross-compatible cards and things like this. Um, if you wanted all of the Arcadia Quest figures, though, you have to get this because this also has figures that you can use in Arcadia Quest. So another game that I had to get once I was trying <laughs> to get all my Arcadia Quest stuff. All right. Rum and Bones, Second Tide. So this Massive- one, this oh, one, Rum ahead. and Bones, was... Eh, critically not so good. Second Tide was actually the second edition, which turned it into a little bit better of a game. Um, Rum and Bones is kind of like, um, oh, what is that? What am I thinking? Like it's an arena game where you have multiple, you have heroes and you have minions and um, uh, like Dota. What What is that type of game? Oh, a MOBA? Yes. So <laughs> Rum and Bones is that in board game form. And it was all right, um, but I don't think, again, it wasn't like a super critical appeal. It was like, it was CMON. People expected a great thing, and they didn't necessarily get a great thing. Massive Darkness. Three the point. World of Smog, Rise of the Moloch. Uh, we got to stop at Massive Darkness. 
because I have words on this one. 3.5 million. This is mm-hmm. when I finally started saying, oh, I should back this. This was the first Simon Kickstarter I backed. I backed July it July in 2016. Yep. And I backed it at its maximum. And I got the game and I played it once and I said, this game is so overproduced. It's mind numbing. There were so <laughs> many miniatures. The miniatures were hit points. So you'd have like a band of goblins spawn and you have like six goblin miniatures and a boss. And the way it worked is you had to do six damage to kill the, the goblin minions. And then you could do a point of damage and kill the boss. So it was literally just hit points. And it. Ugh, I still have all of these miniatures because I figure I'm just going to essentially open them all up and give them to Zachary when he grows up and say, here are your toys, army men, and here's some <laughs> monsters instead. Just so overproduced. Although there have been people that says you have to give Massive Darkness a try and okay, fine, whatever. Um, the World of Smog, it's a one versus mini. I also backed this one. Rising Sun, also backed this one. I'm pretty sure... Almost all of these. Actually, no, there's a couple that I have not. So, R- Rising Sun. You so got to Rising, that before I stopped you. <laughs> Rising Sun and um, Zombicide Green Horde actually come out pretty close together. It's April and then June of 2017. Um, Ri- Rising Sun raises just over $4 million and Zombicide Green Horde gets up to $5 million. Which I believe is their record. It looks like it. Yes. Zombicide... Green, or no, yes. Green Horde is their highest grossing as far as I can see here. Yep. And the next one we need to pause on. I lost my place in this list. <clears throat> okay. A Song of Ice and Fire tabletop miniatures game. Yep. So Simon is known for their miniatures. And up until this point, they didn't really have a miniature, like a tabletop miniatures game that anyone would speak of. But then they got the um, essentially Game of Thrones license. And created a tabletop miniatures game around Song of Ice and Fire. This was a little different than a lot of their other Kickstarters because you could only get part of the game through this. Um, well, you could get the the base sets and a few of the add-ons, but everything else was going to just always go to retail. And that's what they've been doing with this ever since. And apparently it's still an active game. I don't play it, but it... It is a full-on miniatures war game, complete with racks and stacking up all your miniatures in rows and moving around trays and stuff. So it's it's been doing pretty good. Adepticon is a, a very popular miniatures um, war game convention that we have close to us and uh, just outside of Chicago. And this was very well represented at the last Adepticon. So yeah, Song of Ice and Fire if you wanted to do a tabletop miniature game. Yeah, and this is, they've now moved to pretty much just one pledge level, and it's $150 for a lot of these in the 2017 and forward. Um, So next up is Hate. Controversial. So this one was their first and potentially only Kickstarter exclusive game. It was never going to come to retail. It was only available on Kickstarter, and it had a very, very dark theme um, this was another one by Eric Lang. And although it may raise like 1.5 million, um, I don't know that it did as well as they thought. But they also said, you know, this isn't for everybody. This is why it's not going to be in retail. If you want this, get it in Kickstarter only. And I haven't really heard anything out about it since the Kickstarter came out. So I don't know if people love it or hate it. Maybe they hate it. No pun intended. And then we get back to... Of course, Zombicide Invader. So is that a Zombicide every single year so far? Yes. Yes. So this is Zombicide every year so far, um, which made over 3 million. Yep. 3.3. And then we go on to Arcadia Quest Riders, which was which did a- not do very well. So this was their first, and this is they're starting to experiment with things now. And Arcadia Quest Riders was their very first Flash Kickstarter. It literally ran from Monday to Friday, and that was it. And it was a rel- not a mini expansion, but a small expansion for Arcadia Quest. It added mounts. It had a thousand, a little over a thousand backers, but it only raised about three hundred. Oh no, I'm sorry. It had over five thousand backers, but it only yeah. raised about three hundred sixteen thousand um, dollars. It was, but a relative, like again, it was relatively small Kickstarter. I don't know if they considered this successful or not, but they were trying to play around with what they could do with Kickstarter and, you know, whatever. They learned a few things. Um, and then the next one 
Cthulhu, Death May Die. This is um, 2.4 million. With almost 16,000 backers. Almost 16,000 backers, yes. This one's notable for the miniature maxature? Maxature? Oh, yes. Yeah, for the the 18-inch tall Cthulhu. It's bigger than my toddler, I think. (laughs) It certainly weighs almost as much. Yeah, it is big, and it is actually a level in the game, and it's shipped about... Well, it has shipped already. I have not gotten the actual game, but I've had the Cthulhu (laughs) miniature for quite some time. Um, So basically what they did is they needed more time to develop the game, but the Cthulhu miniature was ready to make, so they made that and sent that out. But that miniature was a $100 add-on to any of these pledges. So, but yeah, and we like jury's still out on whether or not this is a good game because nobody's seen it yet. Actually, that goes for all of the next um, three more projects. So up next, we have Starcadia Quest. Of course, I backed at maximum level. Project Elite. I did not back this one, although Project Elite is, this is a reprint. I think they got the rights to the game. It's a reprint from a different publisher. Um, and there's a lot of people who really like Project Elite. So they said, here it is. I think this might be a Kickstarter exclusive. I don't recall exactly. And their latest Kickstarter that has ended is Bloodborne the board game. Making $4 million. Yep. And hopefully, actually, this is a little late. There's one other um, Kickstarter, uh, Trudvang, that's not oh, on yes. this list. Um, but yeah, Bloodborne the board game looks a whole lot better than Bloodborne the card game, which was terrible. <laughs> we'll talk about that in in a minute. Um, and then the current Kickstarter, because it's 2019, is Zombie Side Second Edition, which we talked about on Dice Tower News. It is currently in Kickstarter, so I think it's still going. And yep, this you've got ta- 13 days to go on that one. Yep. And what this does is it takes basically all of the cooler rules from Black Plague and Invasion or Invader. Well, I guess it's 13 days while we record, but this is actually going out like five days from now. So yeah, so there'll be a, lot, a little less than a week, a little more than a week. But um, November sixth, you have until yeah. November sixth. <laughs> so what's interesting about the Zombie Side Second Edition is it's going to have the upgraded miniature types that all of the other Zombie Sides had, besides the modern day Zombie Side. But it's completely compatible with the first edition stuff with a upgrade kit, which you can get in the Kickstarter, which basically just gives you new cards. Um. I personally can't possibly think of mixing those miniatures because they're just they look so different. But I guess you can. Um, they don't want to make make people completely upset. But ultimately, this is this is the zombie side that if you liked fantasy and you liked the the space one and you want those rules, they're here. And there's a ton of updates to the rules. I think it's very interesting. They have a level where you can just get this stuff for your old game upgraded. Oh, so yeah, that makes sense. The nostalgic pledge level. I just want to upgrade my old stuff to second edition. So you get the plastic dashboard sets, second edition survival ID cards and upgrade pack. And which makes it. which makes sense cuz I would assume it also updates the rules so that you're using the more updated rules but you don't want to like reinvest in all of the other stuff. So I, based on the list on Wikipedia, I'm like, oh, they only have one Kickstarter in 2019. But based on what I know, Trudebang and Zombieside's second edition are not on this list. So they're still on track for an average of five or six Kickstarters a year. They haven't changed their ways. Nope. All right. That is a history of Kickstarter for Simon. But Simon is bigger than that. Um, actually, what's interesting with Simon, I think one of the more interesting tidbits about it is Simon is one of the few publicly traded game companies, but they are traded on what we would consider like um, the penny sheets there and in Hong Kong. So it's like the penny sheets on a Hong Kong stock exchange. But if you wanted to own a piece of, of Simon, you could do that. Uh, they are headquartered out of Singapore. And about two years ago, Eric Lang, who designed many of their biggest sellers, um, he took on a role of director of, I want to say director of development and plays a really big role in like planning strategy for the game company now, which was a pretty good move because he had, like I said, he had done a lot of his biggest stuff through them. But um, he also 
what a lot of people don't know is that Simon has a ton of games that are not like these big Kickstarter games. And he, one of the things that Eric Lang wanted to do was like, stop just publishing any game, stop being like a, a publisher that would take on games and only publish games that had like really cool components and making Simon a component company. But they have some hardcore um, Euro games. Lorenzo is a pretty uh, big one. Um, I want to say for... I'm actually looking at the um, list of games <laughs> on Board Game Geek. Council of Four is another one that's kind of a like a heavyish Euro. Then you have games like Potion Explosion, which is like a casual game with marbles. And then if you want more marbles... Super fun. Super fun. You can go Gizmos, which is a machine, like an engine building game, which I also really, really like. Um, they did a roll and write last year or the year before, uh, Railroad Inc., which I actually really enjoyed that as well. Uh, they had the Crossmaster series for a little while. So that's kind of like tactical games. Um, that, oh, they did the Grizzled, which is just a card game. And that one actually met, met with like a lot of critical, um, accolades because people really really like this one and then they had some flops like way of the panda which no one's ever heard of but it should be good it's like pandas and no one no <laughs> one's ever played that um so there's they I just mean, have everyone ton- loved kung fu panda so much <laughs> it's it's weird Such a critically acclaimed film <laughs> yeah it's just the weird what they good. chose to uh, like <laughs> But they chose to uh, publish at different times, like um, a game called Modern Art is on here. And actually, that one's relatively highly rated. But let's see. I think they have... Oh, that doesn't give me a count here, so I can't tell you. And I've, I've had this filtered by only showing me um, games and not expansions. If you do a search on Board Game Geek for Simon, it's like six pages long of games and expansions. Oh, let's see. What else was I finding interesting? Oh, yeah, we did that. Um so component quality. This is one of the things that Simon strives to be the best at. And this is something that's relatively recent. Like their flagship games, they definitely up the component quality over time, but their side games not as much. Like Council of Four is a good game, but it's just a bunch of like colored plastic poured miniatures um and I poured like injection molded versus a lot of their normal miniature games are not injection molded. They're sprued and then pre-assembled. So if you look at a Simon miniature, you can actually see glue po- glue points and stuff like that in a lot of them. That's why you can get a lot of detail in there. But they pre-assemble them for you, so you don't have to worry about it. Um, but then you have like the, like the Council of Four stuff that is, eh, it's okay. So uh, let's talk about some controversial stuff for for Simon. <laughs> Chase promos. I think they may have invented this in the industry. I don't know if they invented it, but they certainly like took it up as their model. What That's is a Chase what... promo? So and and it may have been by accident. So if you look at Zombie Side, and we'll start with the very first Kickstarter. If you backed it, there were a number of add-ons you could get or things that would come with the game at a certain level. And I think they were exclusive at the time because some of those things went for a lot of money. But they were just packs. There were extra monsters, extra survivors, um, extra cards, those types of things. And inadvertently, by making them Kickstarter exclusives, they made them something that was rare, the game was good, and people wanted them. So the secondary market suddenly had these figures that would sell for hundreds of dollars in some cases, or boxes of figures that would sell for hundreds of, of dollars. And then they would do this thing, where, and they still do... Actually, I didn't see it this year, so I don't know if they're not doing it anymore. Maybe they are. But when you go to a convention and you buy something from them, for every $25, you get a ticket. And you can take those tickets and you can go to their promo case. In the promo case, each promo has a certain cost in tickets, which are usually from these Kickstarters. Um, and they don't break any promises. They basically say, hey, these are Kickstarter exclusives and also any extra supply we will give away at shows. They don't give any of this stuff away. You have to get tickets to do it. But that would make things like there was a princess miniature for Arcadia Quest that cost four tickets. So if you wanted it, you're going to spend $100 on eBay to get this one figure um, because you couldn't make it to the show and spend $100 on games. 
so I I was definitely trapped by this. Trapped by it? I don't know. I feel trapped by it. Hooked. Hooked. Um, I needed it. I needed everything. And I, I don't know. I, I, Kitty, you have strong opinions on their Kickstarter format. What do you feel about this promo thing? And like, does it matter? Should people just be, you know, punish their own wallets if they want to go after these things? I think that it's a totally fair practice to have exclusives to if you give us your money ahead pre-order whatever it is you want to call it that's fine you know like this is obviously a business model that's working for them my only problem is the use of kickstarter as a pre-order page okay <laughs> so so that's something we've covered a lot and i won't go back into that <laughs> i think that the pre-order model is perfectly acceptable. If you want to get numbers known so you can make these high-quality games, because it's expensive. It's expensive to make these games. You don't want to take risks on not knowing that you're going to have enough people to make it worthwhile. So makes perfect sense to me to do it this way to and to offer bonuses to those people who are willing to put their money up front. What about you, Fletcher? Is this something that... like? Is there anything in a game where you're like, I have to have that? Like, it's a playable component, and I really, there's a game that you might want that um, component for? I I have tried to um, kill that as part of my personality. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> because the answer is kind of like, yes, but I, I just, like, no. Like, I will buy the base thing. I don't need the collector's super edition with all the extra stuff. I will have fun enough. I don't need to basically spend double the price. I'm not getting double the fun. Yes. Yeah. And I would say that is how I personally feel. I think that it's a fine business practice. And if it's working for them, go for it. But I am never going to buy all the exclusives. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I could say that. (laughs) So, yeah, I I mean, it's fine. If if that's what they want to do, that like, you know, great. But like, that's not something I partake in. I mean, I also just don't play this style of game very much. Like, if ever, I enjoy a very different style of gameplay than their typical kind of flagship Kickstarters that you see so much of. Um, not not my thing. I'm much more of a, a simple, streamlined game. And I love some of their other games. Uh, Railroad Inc., super fun. Love that. Potion Explosion. I still can't believe I don't own that game, but it has a super big box because of all those marbles. So there was like a size of the box versus how much fun there was like <laughs> argument I had with myself. <laughs> so yeah, that that's the kind of person I am. Have I ever Very, made you play Gizmos? Buyer. I have seen other people play Gizmos at Game Holcon. Mm, I got to get you to play that one. <laughs> I think you would really like it. But yeah, I, engine for me, builders are very hit or miss for me. Yeah. For me, I, I go through these phases, right? So Arcadia Quest, I mu- I had to have everything. As soon as I got that last figure, I was done. I'm like, oh, all right, I have everything. And I had lofty goals. I was going to paint everything. I I was going to be like, this was going to be my masterpiece, my magnus opus. And the problem was, I stopped playing it because we just didn't have enough time to play it along with everything else we were doing. So once I stopped playing it, I I lost the incentive to paint it because it wasn't really, I mean, painting is fun, but painting it and then playing it is more fun. So now I have all the pieces and I could go back and I could sell them. But with most collectibles, there's this wave of when it is actually worth something and when you're just never going to be able to sell it. So I don't know that we're in a window where it's actually worth anything right now. Yeah, there's like the initial excitement of the game. And then there's all the people who suddenly realize they missed out. And then all of them buy all of the things that somebody like Chris, who's like, oh, limit two, I better buy two. <laughs> and then they sold all of theirs on the internet. And now everyone has what they want. And uh, oh, the value isn't there anymore. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I don't actually mind the chase promos. Um, I was first hit by this being like oh i like the mini expansions for blood rage if you backed it they had extra monsters that you could get there were um extra player color um 
which you could eventually get anyway. Actually, the player color you might not have been able to, but that it had no mechanical difference. And then there were a few other things too. But when I started playing the game, I'm like, I don't need all this extra stuff because you don't play with it all at once anyway. You just kind of pick and choose the stuff you want to mix in. And I'm like, I'm not playing it enough. And Blood Rage is one of those games that I played pretty often. But I still wasn't playing it enough where I'm like, I need a whole bunch of new stuff. And I feel like without that new stuff, it's just, it's not worth playing. Blood Rage, base game, very good. You don't need anything else. I wonder if it's something that a lot of people come across where you seem to be in this weird position of, I have to have all of the things. But because you're getting all of the things in all of the different games, you can never play them all. So instead, if you had just gotten one game with all the things, maybe you would need more things because you'd play it so often. You'd be like, oh, I get bored of this because, you know, I've played it so many times, but now I can mix in new monsters. Then it'll be super fun. But because you do this with so many games, it becomes like an unplayable. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I need I do, more to. people need to be like <laughs> Fletcher. Um which is silent and listening to us. But <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone listening to this podcast falls in that category. Pretty much. But what Fletcher's saying is is a good point. Like what I end up doing is when I see a game that I think I'm going to like, I want to collect everything about that game before I play it. But then yeah. once I have collected everything, the excitement is gone and now I don't want to play it. Or at least I'm not. And I just have a bunch of stuff. (laughs) Then I just have a bunch of stuff. I think the idea of, you know, something, don't worry about all the extra stuff. Just play the base game. And if you play it enough where you need more stuff, the stuff's out there. You can you can end up getting it. And that's where I'm trying to get more and more. Um, which I think and I was gonna wait until December to announce this, but I think next year I'm gonna go the entire year without buying any new games. <sighs> Expansions are fine. Playing other people's games that someone might have bought is fine. But buying a new game, just a net new game, I'm going to try to go the entire year without doing. Can I place a bet against that? that <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> they're... they're <sighs> There are a few companies, uh, Fantasy Flight. I will take that bet. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Fantasy Flight being one of them, they could release something where I'm like, I must have that. Um, Simon and Stonemaier are not, yeah, all three of the companies we're talking about, all of them have potential to release something that I'm like, I must have, but I'm going to try to not have it and see what happens. I want to see you go to Gen Con and not buy a game. I almost did this year because we were playing Keyforge the entire time. I barely went to the floor. Yep. So now I was given a bunch of games because um, the VIG swag just comes with a whole bunch of games. But most of those I gave away at our live show. So I don't know. I'm going to try it. But I'm going to try to do that whole break myself of needing everything to play a game thing and just play. Um, I am ruling expansions. There are some games I really like and I will get expansions for them because I really like them. But um, all right. Other things that Simon does. Now we talked about Fantasy Flight's webpage last week. And Simon has a similar webpage. So if you go to Cool Mini or not, you go to their rating site, which I believe is why they decided to rebrand to Simon. So they could actually kind of separate themselves from the miniatures rating site. So if you go to Simon.com, you get a page and it's a little bit blog posty and it's it's similar in a lot of ways in concept to Fantasy Flight, but I've never really enjoyed going to this one nearly as it's much. Not great. You don't like it? No, not really. Especially as like a pl- person unfamiliar with like their games and stuff like that. Like, I don't know, you go and you're like, okay, like I want to shop. Like, here's a shop button. Cool. Or you want to go to like their games. If you, and if you just go to see like all their products, like their product page. You don't realize that it, it, this is like a top level thing. So I didn't know like most of the stuff about like all these games. So if I just clicked on Zombicide, right? Like, oh, I've heard about this game. And then there's like, oh, wait, there's one, two, three, four, five, six. There's six core sets and then another six expansions. And it's like, wait, I don't know what I want anymore. Or even if I want any of these. Yeah. And- I don't know. It's, it's kind of weirdly laid out. Well, and you don't know like what expansions kind of go 
with what because there's three different franchises now right and you just have to know a lot when you get here but again it's i mean all of the information is here it just doesn't feel as friendly as the other uh, other sites that i've been to um there's another t- button, you know, Simon Play, and I'm like, uh, what? What is this? Like, it looks like it's just the same pages again, but it's yeah. I I literally have no idea how that's different from products. Do you know what it has though? What? An empty cart feature. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. <laughs> five out of five <laughs> it has an empty cart feature. <laughs> hey, it took me a long time to both add and then remove all what was 117 (laughs) (laughs) things I would have needed to catch up on the Lord of the Rings living card game. All right. All right. Um, They do have an investors button, though. And if you click on that, you get information about their public trading thing and how they're trying to um, get to the big boy exchange and things that are having issues with that. Um, because they're publicly traded, they release their numbers every year. Uh, we covered them, I think, at the beginning of the year. We we talked about different game companies. So you can see exactly how much they're making, how much they're making from different um, sectors and all of that. So you can get a lot of insight into the industry with looking at that information, which is widely unavailable for, for most other games or most, most other game companies. Um, but yeah, they have a lot of investment stuff like, you know, press press announcement, financial reports, um, corporate guidance. And so their current annual report right now, you can just download the PDF. Um, actually, this is a 2017 annual report. They have, yeah, they're just looking at that. There's no 2018. Yeah, they're having issues. Um, so they put in an application to get onto the bigger stock exchange in Hong Kong. And that application expired. So it's unclear as to why they're having problems switching over, but I think this is like the second or third time that the application to go on to the larger stock exchange has expired or not fired for one reason or another. So it's, it's an interesting company to watch and they are attempting to, like I say, reposition themselves. They did lose money last year or they had almost lost money. And then maybe at the very end ended up breaking even. Um, But again, you know, it's a very, very crowded market, and they're a big name, but all of the games we just went through, most of them people probably have never heard of. And so they have their big titles, and they have their flagship games, but they have a ton of other stuff. And I think what they're trying to do is focus on the stuff that they think is going to do better for them and stop publishing just everything willy-nilly. Um, yeah, I I personally am a fan of Simon. I've talked with eric lang at several shows i've played games with him he's he's a really cool guy um he's good for the industry has a lot of opinions if you ever have a a chance to see him on a panel ask him questions he'll answer just about anything um and yeah he's just i don't know he's he's sort of the face of simon right now which apparently they want us to call it come on but no no (laughs) even they can't remember to do it yeah in their most recent how to play video, um, True Bang, they they were saying Simon as well. So I'm going to stick with Simon because because come on <laughs> is uh, uh, no, it's just it's bad. It's bad marketing. Stop doing. If that. If they wanted it to be come on, they had to put the apostrophe in. Yeah, if they put the apostrophe in, that's I'm all how for I would have pronounced it. Yep. Now speaking of things that they do, one thing they do every year, which I think is really cool, and. Fantasy Flight does this, uh, actually, Fantasy Flight does this with Arkham Horror, and I think they might do it with a few other things, um, but they actually have physical stores. Um, Simon does not have physical stores, but they do have a gaming convention that they do every year, and it is essentially just a place to go and play everything that they have. Um, they have a, when you go, you have a swag bag and you just get tons of free stuff from them. Lots of promos, oftentimes promos for games that didn't do so well. So the last one <laughs> I went to, I got a ton of Besiege stuff that is worth like a nickel. Um, especially if you don't have the game, it's just extra plastic, but they also gave a lot of like good stuff out as well. There's a lot of good games that they'll give out. Like oftentimes they'll give out new stuff. Um, there's a demo wall. You there's a promo wall where you can buy new stuff. Um, you can sign up for games. Um, you, they have just like so many cool things. So if you like Simon, check out Simon con. It is worth 
visiting. And I believe it's in March every year, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, I'm going to Google Simon Khan 2019. No, 2020, because 2019 is almost over. Where did 2019 go? And the first thing we can find out is it's not Simon Khan, it's Simon Expo. And of course, <laughs> which sort of makes sense. It's an exposition, exposition of their stuff. Although I don't see anything for 20, 2020. Interesting. Is it done? Is it they're not doing it anymore? I, I can't imagine. We're going to we're going to do a little bit more of a searching. Um, this is making for a really good podcast audio. Hey, you do this all the time. You can talk. I know. And usually you fill the silence with mocking me about what great podcast audio it makes. So here I am helping you out, Chris. Well, this just in, I don't see anything about (gasps) Simon Expo 2020, except for this one Facebook post that says, no, we're not doing it. Actually, it doesn't say that, but it definitely (laughs) doesn't have any information on it so well we'll keep you posted listen to dtn if we ever find out when it is we will announce it but it is a lot of fun um and they have a giant gizmos ball dispenser that look like gumballs i want a big gumball thing um i digress (laughs) all right anything else we should talk about for simon no (laughs) because otherwise you and kitty are just going to yell about it (laughs) (laughs) They're never going to stop their Kickstarter thing. That is sort of their business model. Um, It is the way they raise capital to create the games. And it is how they can give away so much to people who do back it because they can make exactly what they know they need to make. And then the rest of the capital they can use to make retail versions of the game. So understanding that, yes, some people don't like it as a pre-order system. Totally understand that. I do think that they have the potential of going to a an inner site only pre-order system similar to what Stonemeyer does, but I'm not sure that they would raise as much. Although I wouldn't be surprised to see them try it out. Um, Portal Games, which is another publisher, um, they were doing pre-orders from their site for the longest time because they're like, no, 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 we're not going to do Kickstarters. We're not going to do Kickstarters. We're not going to do Kickstarters. And then they went and did a Kickstarter and they're like, okay, that's how we're going to do pre-orders from now on because we make a lot more money doing that. And Portal Games has been around for 20 years. But um, again, it's it's a business model. Love it or hate it. It's it's what Simon does. And other companies have started picking up on that as well. Um I think Mythic Games is a is a good example. They basically have the exact same model. I know. That's good, though. We're going to end on that sigh. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So we do have a couple questions that came in over the last week. And I, I'm going to read the first one. And then, Fletcher, you're going to read the second one. Okay. Um, so this was from uh, Jesse. He says, has there ever been a game that you have given away to a friend that you have never played and learned later that it was a game to keep because it was so good? I'm going to pose that to you guys first. I have never given away a game. <sighs> so selfish. I have never well, I given have away like... <laughs> an unplayed game. Twelve. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess this question is to me. Um, no. I don't think I've ever given away where later I found out, oh my God, I, I must have that game. Um, or I feel I regretful for giving it away. There have been games, and I can't think of any off the top of my mind, I just can remember the feeling, where I gave something away, I hadn't played it, and then I later found, I don't know, a video or something, or maybe it was an expansion that came out, and I'm like, I bought the expansion, realizing that I didn't have the base game anymore. Then I went out and bought the base game again, and then I gave both of them away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that has happened. Um, it's There's also times where I'll loan games out and then forget that I loaned it out and then buy expansions for it, and usually I want to get those games. But if there is a situation where I do give out a game and I don't, like, I like, oh, I really want to play this, I will just go out and get it again. Because I don't mind buying games to support the industry. I do this with books. Yes. So I I lend books to people all the time. And then I'll be like, well, I really want to read that again. 
And if they never returned it, it is easier for me to just go out and buy another copy of the book than to go like harangue my friend. Because honestly, it's like giving the gift of reading or playing games. I'm just passing along the hobby to somebody else. And it's not worth it to like, so bad blood to be like, hey, give me my thing back. It's like the worst version of LeVar Burton. (laughs) (laughs) I am just like the meanest LeVar Burton. But yeah, I'm like I say, I'm I'm actually happy when I give games away. At, like reading other- repo, more like <laughs> <laughs> <Reading> repo. <laughs> all right, all right. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> <sighs> this is why we have a third person. <laughs> oh, oh man! All right, what does JTT have to tell us? So Jonathan Taylor Thomas writes in and he says, I did have one question related to tapestry. Does anybody else, every time we say tapestry, I have the Raiders of the, not, not Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, the Last Crusade, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade <laughs> quote goes yes. through my head every single time. <laughs> tapestry. We have many tapestries. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are Scottish law, then I am Mickey Mouse. <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. Uh, I did have one question related to tapestry. There was a review embargo, and I was in, and I was curious about what you thought about this practice. My main complaint with tapestry was the fact that the embargo did not unlift until right before pre-orders opened. Jamie did mention that he will look into re- revising the length of time going forward, which I'm okay with. But I wanted to get your thoughts with practices of review embargoes in general. Also, are they even necessary in board games? So we will talk about Stonemeyer and Jamie a lot next week. Um, but I wanted to address this question too. So are you guys familiar with the review embargo for Tapestry? Yes. I mean, they have rev- review embargoes for like everything. Really. Right. Well, they typically don't for board games. I do agree with that. But he was, he being Jamie, did um, play around with the idea of making this a review embargo. So what was really interesting about this one is he sent out the game to reviewers, said you can play the game. You can play it online. You can teach people how to play it. You can do everything you can. You just can't give your opinion of the game until the day the pre-orders open. His justification for this was he wanted to make sure that once reviews were released, that people could go and immediately pre-order the game. If it was too early, then the hype would have been, you know, there would have been a spike in hype, but people then wouldn't necessarily have gone and ordered the game. So that was his reasoning. Now it may have worked because a four day window turned into a day and a half window to order at Tapestry. So maybe he is right. Maybe the error that he made here was just not having enough games on hand to cover the demand that he created by doing this. It is also worth noting that yes, you know, if you don't have that, you know, immediate ready to click and read a review and then go order ability, then this was like a super, super short window between here's the review and here's the game. I will say in the defense of this specifically, though, since you could watch people play entire games, you could have probably gotten a pretty good idea of how the game played anyway. You just didn't get a final, I give this a A minus or C plus or whatever type of thing. So I don't know. Like For me, I don't mind in review embargoes. I actually would rather do that than seeing a bunch of reviews for games that I can't get for like six months. Dice Tower does that a lot. Where I'll see reviews for games that are just completely unavailable for months. And then I'm like, well, now it's a little late. It's spiking in the hotness. And all the questions are, well, when can I get this? So I don't know. It's kind of a mixed mixed bag. What do you guys think? I think, I think it's, it's a good idea. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, so it creates potential hype for a game. Um, you, the, like the embargo is usually like the day of or the day before you can release, you know, buy something and you get like a swell of r- reviews all coming out at the same time as opposed to having it like trickle out. So if you're like interested at all in board games or this type of game, there's like all the reviews at once. And I mean, this is a strategy that tons of companies and other, maybe not in the board game industry, but like tons of other companies and other industries use like review embargoes on video games, on movies, on tech stuff. So I don't know. It's a very common strategy. I think it's an interesting strategy because I think it also 
um, the way that this was done, where you could watch people play the game, you could see how it worked, it kind of made you form your own opinion instead of just relying on, well, Tom Vassell likes it, so I'll like it. And you don't just go with that, or like Tom Vassell didn't like it, so of course I'm not going to like it. I guess that's the bigger one for them. Yeah. Is, you know, if one big reviewer says, I didn't enjoy this game very much, that can be very bad. And instead, you know, everyone looked at actual gameplay footage. And I, I think there could be a lot of, well, I didn't actually look at that. I just looked at the final answer. So, yeah. And I like the idea that multiple opinions coming out all at once. So if that one yeah. person doesn't like it, it's like, well, nine people liked it. One person didn't. Okay, maybe there's something here. And I see all that in the same day. Instead of one person didn't like it, and then three months later, nine people liked it, but why would I go back and look at that? I already read a review that said it was awful. Yeah. Yeah, I and I, the more I think about it, the more I do kind of like this. Now, there's really no way to enforce an embargo short of saying, if you break this, you will not get any early advance copies anymore. And most yeah. reviewers will you know, respect the embargo. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think there's any bad signs to this i think again i think jamie just underestimated the demand for the game so speaking of tapestry though we're giving away a copy next week um you enter by sending me an email at feedback at tabletopgametalk.com and with the subject oh what did i say um tapestry Tapestry. entry (laughs) and put your full name in the body of the email then you are entered if you're a patron you're automatically entered and you're entered at whatever dollar amount you are patrons, so you get basically an entry per dollar. Um, this is – we used to do this um, a long time ago, and then patron got upset that I was making it like a random giveaway thing. But it's not advertised, so I'm doing it anyway. Um, but if you want to get 10 entries without giving us any money at all, which I'm totally fine with um, – then you can read our credits. So go to the show notes in your podcatcher or uh, the webpage. If you go to the tabletopgametalk.com, you'll be able to see all of our um, entries for each of our shows. And read the credits that are on the bottom there. If you read the credits and send me an MP3 or an M4A or whatever whatever format your phone or audio device records in, I can read them all. Wave. Wait, not wave. <laughs> Ogborgus. Will not accept. Whatever compressed format, (laughs) then uh, send that over to me and you will get 10 entries. Um, We will use your readings no matter what. We're going to use them Um, and they're going to be fun. And we have one that we're going to play right now in a minute. But um, yeah, keep doing that. And we are going to I'm going to encourage that from for the foreseeable future. So. Uh, this will be a good way of me randomly giving away things. And like I say, read our credits and you will be entered to get random giving away stuff. Um, I have something in the very near future that I'm just going to spontaneously give away. And it'll be for anyone who's read the credits or any of our patrons. Um, and probably anyone who's like given us any kind of feedback or anything like that. But I'm just going, I'm not going to give any warning. I'm just going to say, and the winner is this person. And they're going to get something pretty cool. All right. Uh, tabletop game talk you can follow us at facebook at slash tabletop game talk podcast twitter tabletop game tlk kitty is lawful good mom fletcher is net fletch i am game master chris um you can patron us at tabletop game talk.com slash patreon tabletop game talk is a proud member of the dice tower network thanks for listening and remember we love your feedback so email us with comments or questions about today's topic at feedback at tabletop game talk.com and finally Here we go. Sam, this is you. I love this. Ready and go. Adam Harrison, the SGC, Jason Strong, Terrence Miltner, Stephen Seitz, Brian Arnold, C.P. Kelly, C. Marie, Rudy Liu, Benjamin Heimowitz, Jerry Huang, Stephen Phillips, Caleb O'Brien, Jennifer N. Gobrecht, Justin Willard, Christopher Dong, Jason Marks, Jeremy Fisher, David Rad... (laughs) David Radke, Nick... Quick... Nick Quickstra, David David Sellers, Jason Rodney, Michael Yanwakowski, Miles Clark, Sydney Lum, Phil Swartzel, Ann Reynolds, Eric Huffman, Andrew, Adrian Dong, Nate, Fats Fentham, Sin, Son, Sean, 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 ugh, Sean Peck, Eric Sealander, Mike Smith, Trevor Davis, Tim Verning, Chris Lowe, Joe Hoover, Timothy Gross, Jen Cotter, Jesse Wakovic, 
M. Jewel Jacobson, Mariana Stevenson, Brady Meltzer, Gregory Hubbard, Don Jeltstrap, Stephen Judd, Leanne Verholtz, Christopher Letko, John Lewis, Joe Radstack, Ron Nelson, Neil McLaglen, Sarah Wentworth, Weatherman Keith, Nicholas Lotz, Agnes Toth, and Paul Reimer. And Jimothy. And Jimothy. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, that was amazing. Um, we have one from Tim for next week. And I want to hear more, more, more. I will give away games to hear people read the credits. <laughs> Until next week, keep playing games and having fun. All right. One more publisher. We got this. You can do it. You guys yawned through that entire episode. It was not that boring. Kitty made me do it. <laughs> <laughs>